Hey everybody and welcome to Get Your AI On The Podcast. I'm Ciprian Borodescu and this podcast is brought to you by Algolia, the AI-powered search and discovery platform. I'm the host of the show and every episode I invite founders, entrepreneurs, business leaders and even AI researchers to share with us their experience in dealing with business problems that can be solved through intelligent use of data. This is episode number 23. Let's get your AI on. I'm here with John Zarelli, a philosopher with particular interest in cognitive science, artificial intelligence, and the law. He is currently a research fellow at the Leverhulme Center for the Future of Intelligence in the University of Cambridge, and from May 2021, will be a Leverhulme Trust Fellow the University of Oxford. He has published numerous articles, Canvassing Law, Political Economy, Philosophy, and the Cognitive Science, and three books, the most recent one, A Citizen's Guide to Artificial Intelligence that you can find on Amazon. John, I'm super excited and it's an honor to have you on this podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's absolutely my pleasure and thank you for the invite. Um, in your book, you talk about 10 core themes in an attempt to make sense of the new algorithmic world order. And with your permission, I'd like to list these core themes and invite you to talk about two of them and invite our listeners to explore the rest of them in the book. Yep, that's fine. So the core themes of the book are what is AI, transparency, bias, responsibility and liability, control, privacy, autonomy, algorithms in government, employment, and oversight and regulation. Now, how about we dive deeper into transparency and control themes? That's a good idea. In the chapter on transparency, you tell the story of Hans clever hands to explain why we should never trust the technology to make important decisions about anything, unless we've got some way of interrogating it. Do you mind sharing that story with our listeners and explain why transparency is such a critical theme in this vast topic of AI? Yes, I, I first came across the story of clever hands when I was in what you would call elementary school or primary school. Okay. I think I might have been seven or eight years old, and I heard this story about a horse <clears throat> in Berlin who was able to add numbers and perform various um, calculations, and it would tap out the answer to these arithmetic problems with its with its with its hoof, and I was. Um, very taken up with this story, and I was fascinated by it. But then I forgot where I where I'd read it. I'd forgotten um, how I came to learn about it, or where in primary school, uh, what year I was in primary school when I when I learned of the story. And it wasn't until something like thirty years later that I I came across the story again. And it was r- right around the time that I was um, doing the research for this book. Mm-hmm. And I thought this this story makes an excellent illustration. It makes a really good point about why we need 
AI and machine learning systems to be explainable. So the story goes that this, as I said, there was this horse and it could do arithmetic. Um, <clears throat> apparently, he could he could add, subtract, divide, multiply. He could even read and spell and tell the time. So if his owner asked him, for example, what day of the month the coming Friday would fall on, Hans would tap out the answer. He would give 11 taps for the 11th day of the month, five taps for the fifth day of the month, and so on. And the, the astonishing thing is that he was very often right. He had something like an 89% hit rate. <laughs> and that, that understandably caused a huge sensation. And he was reported on in the New York Times under the headline, Berlin's wonderful horse. He can do almost everything but talk. <laughs> so it was, you can understand why an eight-year-old, indeed even a 28 or a 38-year-old, might find this very um, astonishing. Yeah. But a psychologist came along a little later and investigated the case of Hans. They called him Clever Hans. And he concluded that, Hans wasn't actually performing the arithmetic or telling the time or reading German. Oh, no. What, yeah, what, what, what seems to have happened is that Hans was, had become very good at reading his owner. So when Hans would approach the, the, the right number of steps with his hooves, um, then the, his owner would give off certain facial expressions without realizing it and and the horse was able to read his owner and it it so happened that um when he the, the horse was approaching the the second last or the penultimate tap to the correct answer his owner's tension would be at its highest mm -hmm. and and the horse could read that tension in his owner's face and then the horse knew to stop one tap after the owner's tension peaked. Yeah. And that meant that he was very often accurate in what answer he was giving, but the horse knew nothing of what he was doing. Yeah. He didn't know what three plus four meant, what numbers were, but by reading his owner, he could give the right answer. And the moral of the story is that you can, you can, you can have a system, or in this case, an organism, that seems to be able to perform a, an intelligent task without the intelligence. So it might be giving you the right answers, but for the wrong reasons. So long as it's giving you the right answers, maybe you don't care. But at some point, if you unleash a system in circumstances where the facts are more complicated, uh, the scenario is is you know, a richly detailed one, it becomes important to get the right answer for the right reason because eventually um, it'll be found out. An example might be if, you, if you've ever answered a multiple choice quiz. Now, one way of doing it is just by saying, I'm going to circle A for every answer. And so you go through and yeah. you answer option A. Now, maybe you'll get the right answer some of the time for all of them or you might get a, a high um, mark but you'll eventually be caught out. That heuristic will eventually fail. And so that's why it's important for our machine learning systems 
not just to be accurate, but that they be able to get the right answer in the right way. And now many proposals for explainable AI assume that the inner workings of an ML system constitute an acceptable level of transparency. What are the pros and cons of this approach and how does the alternative look like? Yeah, so the the emphasis on uh, an acceptable level of transparency being constituted by the inner workings um, it seems to come from, it seems to be uh, based on an understanding that, uh, or, or the assumption that unless we can get to the, the architectural innards of a machine learning system and understand it from within at the deepest levels of its, of its, of its composition, then any explanation of that system would be unsatisfactory. Mm. So that, that's, the, uh, that's the kind of framing assumption behind the call for transparency and explainability to reach deep into the system's internals. Um, Now, pros and cons. So the pros of this, well, obviously, is that the more you can understand about a system intuitively, the better. And that that relates to all sorts of uh, benefits. For example, the benefit of being able to fix the system if it ever malfunctions, the benefit of being able to improve the system. Maybe it's not malfunctioning, but you might want to improve it in some way. Um, You know, obviously it's advantageous to have as much knowledge as you can about the working of a system from that point of view. However, the cons are considerable if you think about what a lot of these systems are being used for. So often these machine learning systems are being used to supplement or to substitute a human in a decision task. So you might have a judge who would form an assessment of the risk that an accused person uh, might escape the jurisdiction if they're released pending trial. So that's a bail application. In a bail application, the judge would have to weigh up all sorts of factors and then come to a decision about that person's risk. If you use a, a machine to do that, if you wholly automate that part of the job, no, no jurisdiction to my knowledge actually does fully substitute the, the human judge, but let's just say you, you did, yeah. um, then you would need to be able to explain why the prediction was as it was. But um, it, it's in those circumstances, it's not clear that you really do need this in-depth, detailed in understanding of why the machine decided as it did. So long as a machine occupies a human office, the, the Latin phrase that I use in a paper of mine is in loco hominem. If the machine operates in loco hominem, in the position of a human, then the only standard of explanation, or at least at, at a first approximation, a sufficient standard of explanation for the machine's um, performance would be comparable to the level of explanation that we get from humans. Now, human judges, human caseworkers, um, 
they don't deliver the internal workings of their minds when they give an explanation. They cite reasons, they give they cite their beliefs, they cite their goals, they, they cite their understanding of the relevant law. And that's how they fashion their explanations. They do not descend to a level of explanation which is, let's say, neural. They don't talk about what neurons firing when, um, and this is why they decided to let that person go. Uh, they, they focus squarely on their impressions and they cash out their explanations in terms of beliefs and desires. We call it folk psychology. Yeah. So the, the, the con then is that anytime we're using a system to replace a human decision maker, we risk um, insisting on far too detailed a level of explanation um, when in fact the system might be a good system to use without insisting on such high levels of explanation. Maybe if we insist on too much depth, we, we, we wouldn't use the system and therefore we would deal ourselves out of the advantages of that system. Uh, it can also be regarded as a double standard to ask AI to explain its decision-making process when humans themselves aren't always capable of doing that. Yes, there is a double standard to the extent that we insist on this extremely detailed level of explanation for machines and only a, a moderately, um, moderately uh, comprehensive explanation from humans. That is a double standard. I think you could make a case for why we should have a higher standard for machines. One way of making that case would be to say, well, what if by insisting on a higher standard of explanation for machines, we end up uh, encouraging intensive research in that direction and we are able to provide really good detailed explanations of these systems. Isn't it worth it, the argument would go? Isn't it worth striving to get a better explanation from these systems than we get from humans? Why should we take the human level to be the benchmark? So if if we can, then we should try. That, that would be one argument for in, enforcing a double standard. But I still think there's something intuitive about not requiring more from a machine than we would require from, from a human. There's something intuitive about that and appealing, even if it only works, let's say, in the short to medium term. Perhaps in the longer term, we should insist on deeper explanations from machines. However, there's one qualification to that or the one problem with that is that the deeper and more comprehensive the explanation, the fewer people there will be that will understand it. So at the end of the day, so long as you're using machines to replace human decision makers who make decisions that affect human subjects, those human subjects will want to know why the decision was made, why they were um, not granted bail or parole, why they were not granted a loan, uh, why they were not... um, sufficiently screened um, during the pre-employment process, why they didn't get called for the job. 
they'll want those explanations in a form they can understand. And again, the way we as humans explain ourselves to one another is through folk psychology. It's not by using um, you know, deep algorithmic engineering principles. And so what is explainable AI 2.0? And why is that more acceptable than the first iteration? And what other viable explainable systems do we have at our disposable? Explainable AI 2.0, as I call it in the book, is the attempt by one community of machine learning researchers, it's called the explainable AI movement, an attempt by them to bring machine learning explanations back down to earth, so to speak, to make explanations comprehensible, the word is interpretable, by ordinary people who have to are on the receiving end of these decisions. So in other words, explainable AI for the most part strives to generate explanations that meet the very criteria I was saying before of being comprehensible, folk psychological, intuitive. So instead of giving an explanation in terms of um, you know, complicated mathematical abstruse equations, you give an explanation in terms of, okay, the belief, the, the system believed that you were at high risk because you had a sibling who had been previously arrested for union picketing. You also have, let's say, you, you, you come from some particular ethnic background which correlates more strongly with recidivism. And the system believes that both these two factors are highly predictive, combined with your age, of a greater risk of reoffending if you are if you are released. So therefore, it gave you the score it did. That sort of explanation, a sort of more folk psychological explanation, coheres with our ordinary reason giving practices. And so, explainable AI 2.0 is that in part in part, is the attempt to provide explanations like that. And the way it generally does it is by taking the, the more complex algorithm that it wants to explain and it constructs a simpler algorithm that tries to predict the first algorithm. And if the simpler algorithm can successfully model the first, the original complex algorithm in enough cases, then that simpler algorithm will be used to fashion an explanation rather than using the original algorithm with all its complexity. Um, there are a couple of things that you mentioned during all these explanations and while reading the book, I, uh, I can't help but, you know, wondering about consciousness, about, you know, instead of replacing, uh, augmenting, humans with artificial intelligence capabilities i am just wondering if how would ba basically how we would define consciousness when it comes to ai and i think philosophy here uh, is a really rich ground that we can uh, base our definition on uh, consciousness as as far as i understand uh, arrives when uh, you start asking questions about self, right? And if AI or an AI system starts asking questions about the self, then that's the moment when we can 
at least start talking about or take into consideration some form of consciousness? Yes. So I think if we, I mean, the, the simplest way to understand consciousness is just to understand it as phenomenal awareness, is to have a point of view. If, if an object has a point of view, or to put it in the, the language that has become famous in philosophy, if there's something that it's like to be an object, there's something it's like to be a bird, there's something it's like to be a bat, then we can say that that thing is conscious. It has phenomenal awareness. The, the sensory array mm-hmm. in the environment impinges itself on that organism and the organism somehow processes what, is, what it is receiving from the environment and moves potentially, uh, moves and acts in response to the inputs it receives from its environment. Another form of consciousness up from that would be the one you're describing, which is self-consciousness, where not only is the system conscious, but it's conscious that it's conscious. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's something that I don't think we would need to see evidence of in a machine before we could conclude that it's conscious. It would be enough if there was something it was like to be a machine, then it would it would pass that first hurdle of consciousness. And that in itself would be a mm. mind-blowing breakthrough. Very interesting. Um, just a personal curiosity. How did you start with philosophy and why philosophy for you? What is the story behind all of that? Yeah, well, very quickly, I originally trained as a lawyer and I practiced as a lawyer in Australia. Mm-hmm. I was also um, quite a devout Christian for my in my my teenage years but I eventually for a number of reasons lost my Christian faith but something in the way that you're suggesting occurs to you I started reading philosophy as a form of therapy and p- contemplating big questions f- met some sort of existential need at the time but then i sort of got over that and while i still ponder the big questions i, I just don't think that i'm ever going to have a suitable answer for them so i'm satisfied with the meaning of my life being determined by the activities that i perform so i i, I take the meaning of life to be an epiphenomenon of of activity in the world mm-hmm. um, but Philosophy then changed from being therapy for me and it, it became somewhat more of a, <laughs> a, a technical preoccupation. I became interested in language and in generative linguistics and in the way that the brain processes language and in cognitive science more generally, became interested in computation, how the mind can be understood as a computer of sorts, and then I just got led away into the philosophy of cognitive science, which is purely technical. It's absolutely non-therapeutic, well, for the most part. And my interest in it is solely professional. Um, it's no longer <laughs> therapeutic. But I can understand why philosophy would have that therapeutic appeal to some, to some 
people, and indeed to many people, particularly people who have come out of traditional religious faith, they might look elsewhere. Interesting. Interesting. Thank you so much, John. Uh, okay. Let's um, talk a little bit about control. What do you think? Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Yes, that's a good idea. So in your book, you start the discussion on AI control by explaining the difference between ultimate and meaningful human control. And on top of that, in the lethal autonomous weapon system literature, there's a, even a distinction between humans being in the loop, on the loop, and off the loop. What's that all about? So in the lethal autonomous weapons literature, there is this distinction drawn between being in the loop, on the loop, and off the loop. And they are just shorthand encapsulating, shorthand uh, ways of encapsulating the degree of control that the human has over the, the weapon that's being used. When we say in the loop, we mean that the human gets to say whether a target will be engaged so that the human is in effective control. Of, of the weapon. And then the buck stops squarely with the human who decides to attack because the choice was theirs and they decided to engage the target. When we say on the loop, when a human is on the loop, in this situation, the machine, the system, the autonomous weapon system might identify and track a target, an enemy combatant but it won't decide whether to engage. So it might send footage back to base, but then the human has to make the final call about whether we um, pull the trigger, as it were. And then the final version of this is when the human is off the loop. That's when the human has no say at all. So, that the, for example, the drone system might handle everything from identifying and tracking a target all the way through to engaging that target without any human intervention. So in, on, and off the loop are just varying degrees of human control, from full control to no control. Got it. Are there, so today I think autonomous vehicles are mostly the second level on the loop with partially partial moments yes. uh, off the loop, right? Yes, that's right. I thought that it was interesting in defining the control problem, how you broke it down into four basic problems. Can you tell us more about that and how, if they can be solved? The, the reason why I talk about the degree of human control at all is because there's a, a field of psychology known as human factors. That's the name of this branch of psychology which studies precisely the effect of um, varying degrees of control on the human organism. So it turns out that when a human is fully engaged and is fully in charge of something, operating a machine, they are very alert. They can be, for the most part, they can be trusted to keep watch, keep vigil on the system, and they are active and they don't miss cues. To the other extent, to the other extreme, when the human is merely monitoring a machine and the machine is really doing everything, that seems to be a very dangerous 
set up because in those circumstances the human gets very bored and then loses effective control over the machine. They're, perhaps they're, they, their mind wanders or they read something or they listen to the radio. They're not active and they can't maintain constant um, that constant executive function running because there's, there's not enough to engage them, to absorb them in the task. So that's why it's a dangerous setup. Systems that are somewhere in the middle, so something like on the loop, where the human still has things to do, but there's a lot that the machine does. Yeah. These are probably um, or somewhere between that point and the extreme of the human having nothing to do. This is the most dangerous territory because we tend to think um, that the human in these circumstances would be trustworthy and able to monitor what's going on. But because their, their attention is still not fully engaged, there's a very great risk that they might fall into a kind of autopilot mode and then they'll miss crucial cues and maybe some catastrophe will happen. You can imagine if this scenario happened in an air flight control deck or in you know, air traffic control or even at a nuclear power plant, you can't afford to have people that are falling asleep at the wheel. So Human Factors has examined these, these various psychological effects and I divide the various forms of loss of control yeah. into four. So one problem, yeah. it's, it's all the overarching problem of control, the loss of control, but one aspect of that is the capacity problem. So if a machine becomes very, very complex, then humans are not going to be able to keep track of that system because it's too advanced and it operates at incredible speeds. So that's one way that a human can lose control simply by not understanding what is going on. Yeah. Another problem, the second problem, would be an attentional problem, which as I've already basically mentioned, this is where things become very boring and for the human to monitor the system's seamless transactions is almost like watching paint dry or watching water boil. It, it's just it's not engaging enough. The third problem uh, I've called the currency problem, but it's probably not the best term that I could have used there. Basically, this is keeping your skills current. If you are operating or in charge of machinery that basically does everything and you don't need to do much, then your own technical professional control skills will degrade over time. You know, you've probably heard the expression, use it or lose it. If you don't engage the muscle, the muscle atrophies. And then the final problem, the final way that you can have the control problem is an attitude. So the more advanced the system becomes, the more likely the human will just trust the system and will not question what the system tells it. And so then you get that sort of computer says no mentality. So all four of these are just different aspects of the same problem of what happens when a system becomes too complex and does too much and the human is left to do very little except just sit and watch what it's doing. And are there any ways to address these problems? 
Uh, yeah, so there's a lot of different strategies. Obviously, the four problems are, are quite different, so they call for different solutions. But with the, let's just take the attitudinal problem, the problem where you end up just overtrusting the system. One way that you can potentially mitigate this effect is by performing what are called catch trials. So the system is engineered in such a way that it deliberately generates errors. Yeah. So it does what it does very, very successfully, but it will deliberately generate errors to keep the human on their toes, to keep them watching and not just to take everything at face value. So that's that's one way. As for, say, the the attentional problem where you just get so bored that you, you switch off, yeah. that's very difficult. You can't really solve that. I mean, that's the only way to um, alleviate that problem mm-hmm. is by retaining the human in the loop, giving them some more absorbing mm-hmm. function. So designing a system is a branch of computer science known as human-computer interaction where they investigate yeah. all sorts of ways of making humans fit together nicely with their technology. So that, that would be the only approach to fixing that problem. We're not going to suddenly figure out a way not to be bored if we're doing nothing. So that's just an example. Excellent. Now, usually I like to surprise my listeners and guests with a special question of the episode, one that has not been shared with a guest speaker beforehand. But this time, I'd like to end this episode with the take-home message of the book and invite you to challenge our listeners by asking them one question to think about, to reflect on, a question that a citizen's guide to artificial intelligence provides an answer to. That's an excellent way to end the interview. I would say if you think about global warming, climate change and the science of climate change, most of us as responsible citizens would have enough information that would enable us to make informed decisions when it comes to electing our representatives. So we want to elect representatives that we we hope have the planet's best interests at heart. And we don't need to know enough, oh, sorry, we don't need to know much about the climate and geology and oceanography and meteorology in order to appreciate who the best person is um, to represent environmental concerns in our, in our elected assembly. My question to your audience would be, do you feel that you have enough knowledge about AI, big data, machine learning to be able to make the same sort of informed decision at the democratic ballot box? Or do you feel that your knowledge of AI and big data, big tech, is not comparable to the the knowledge that you have about global warming? If that's the case, then I would recommend that you, you, you do what it takes to get yourself up to speed because the world of, uh, of technology and AI is set to revolutionize most of our lives. Um, in fact, in the past 30 years, the world has changed almost beyond recognition. Be- before we had dial-up internet, we, you know, just think of how we used to communicate. You couldn't so much as go out and agree to meet a friend outside somewhere and then just hope that you'll bump into them. And if you didn't call them, 
now you you know you at that point you had to have a precise location and a precise time and if they didn't show up there was no texting the world is completely different and that pace of change will only accelerate as we move forward and the changes that are afoot and that in, indeed that have already occurred that the degree of um uh automated influence on our choices on our buying choices on our voting patterns all of these are posing uh, novel questions for how we're governed, for democracy, and it behoves all of us to have some knowledge of the world of big tech to be informed digital citizens in what is going to be the you know the digital twenty first century. Well, that's an excellent uh, excellent ending to this episode. John, it was a pleasure to have you on this podcast, and thank you, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with me and with us. Thank you again. Thank you very much for the invite. I enjoyed it. How can people reach out to you for ideas and comments? Uh, well, if you if you just go to um, my institutional webpage, which is um, at Cambridge University, you can just type my name into Google, and it will take you to my institutional webpage and there's my email is there uh, jz303 at cam.ac.uk that would be the easiest way awesome thank you so much you're welcome all right this was get your ai on podcast thank you all for listening and be sure to subscribe we're going to post a new episode every other week, so stay tuned for the next conversation. See you next time.